Welcome back to Coffee House Comparison. I'm Amberlynn, and I'm here again with Kylie Thessaly. On this week's episode, we are going to talk about civil justice in Saudi Arabia. So the United States has come under fire for being supposedly too litigious, um, being too sue-happy. And the question is, is Saudi Arabia the same? Do they have a litigation explosion, as it's been called? Um, Which is difficult to answer. There's a very secretive nature to the Saudi Arabian government. Um, They don't really have anything along the lines of public records. Um, But there are several policy measures in place in Saudi Arabia that have given rise to credible speculation. Um, So for one thing, personal freedoms are not protected under Sharia law. A lot of the things that we would maybe in the United States think to sue for, like Uh, the right to privacy being invaded or our personal property being stolen, our freedom of speech or religion or the freedom of the press being invaded. Basically anything to do with human rights or civil rights um, or due process, none of that is recognized in Saudi Arabia. So the range of civil cases is limited far more there than it is here. Um, Additionally, um, Sharia law in Saudi Arabia, it doesn't adhere to precedent. So the sentencing of one courtroom doesn't affect the sentencing of another, which eliminates what in the U.S. has been called the shark effect. Uh, Basically, one case, its resolution giving rise to dozens just like it, like the Agent Orange example. Um, And then much of the population in Saudi Arabia is disenfranchised rights-wise. You know, women, religious minorities, poor people, they have little means with which to hire lawyers and very slim chances of gaining favor with judicial authorities. Um, For example, in Saudi Arabia under Sharia law, a man can decide to divorce his wife at any time for any reason, and she can do nothing to stop it, um, whereas a woman doesn't have the option of divorcing her husband at all. Um, And then, you know, likewise, the dominant patriarchy of Saudi Arabia would be less likely to sue because they're the ones benefiting from this system. Um, You know, for example, (laughs) land ownership in Saudi Arabia is defaulted to men. So if a woman's husband died, his property would be automatically transferred to his male next of kin. So why would that male next of kin have any reason to want to sue the government, basically? Um, So a much more significant percentage of the population in Saudi Arabia is dissuaded from suing than it would be in America. Yeah, so in America, um, as Thessaly said, there's been what people claim to be a litigation explosion. Uh, Whether that's necessarily true is up to debate. There are things to take into account, like we have a larger population than a lot of countries. So is the number of litigations happening proportionate to our um, population actually that much more than any other country? And also um, in our press... Uh, headline or court cases make good news. People want to hear about them, especially if they're weird, sort of unusual cases. And yeah.
So in Saudi Arabia and Sharia law, there are two types of actions. There's the public right and the private right. For the public right, which is an action that is similar to a common law or civil law crime, while private right is an action that is similar to civil action in any of the other major legal systems. The courts are not divided into criminal and civil sections, so the same Khadid or the judge would hear both types of cases. In civil cases, a litigant may appoint any Saudi Arabian person to represent them as long as they do not have two or more cases concurrently in all of the proceedings. So now we're going to talk about the pretrial phases. So the first phase is pleadings. So in Saudi Arabia, they need to be formal written pleadings are not required, so they must be oral. Um, The notice of the judgment needs to include the reason on which the judgment was based, the grounds thereof, the circuit issuing it, the date and place of the issuance, the relevant case, whether it's administrative, penal, or disciplinary, names of circuit members who hear the pleadings, name of the prosecutor and his demands, names and capacities of the parties in the case, their domicile, attendance or absence, and names of the representatives and the demands or defenses submitted by them as well as the evidence pro-offered by them. The original copy of the judgment notice needs to be signed by the circuit head, the circuit member, and its clerk within 15 days. The original copy, copy must be deposited in the case file in a copy with the seal of the circuit and signed by the head of clerk and given to all prevalent parties. The circuit dealing with the case needs to be informed once the convict is provided with the judgment has the right to appeal the judgment within 30 days. And if they don't, the judgment is final and enforceable. So we have a pretrial phase in America as well, and we also have pleadings as one of those stages, um, one of four actually. Um, Here, pleadings aren't quite that uh, dense or complex. Uh, The rules for specifically what needs to be included in a pleading vary from state to state, but in general, um, the case will begin with the pleading, um, which is a plaintiff's formation of a written complaint, can't be oral here, um, and there are four minimum rules for that written complaint, uh, which is, sounds like a lot less than in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> so for those four minimum rules, um, the pleading must describe the factual basis for the suit. It must give the petition court a jurisdictional basis for why they should be the one to hear the claim, which is, again, quite different from Saudi Arabia, where criminal and civil courts aren't really divided mm-hmm. at all. Um, then additionally... The pleading must give the plaintiff's legal theory that they intend to use in the case, and it must state the claimed damages owed to the plaintiff. The complaint must then be served to the defendant in the form of a formal notice and a summons to appear in court. Um, The defendant then usually responds, usually, um, with a denial of the allegations, although they can admit to some allegations um, or bring counterclaims. Um, And, of course, a failure to respond to the pleading will or can result in a summary judgment in favor of the plaintiff. So the second phase is discovery. In Saudi Arabia, there is no discovery phase. In here, the parties are free to disclose only the documentation or information that helps their case and nothing that does not. If a party refers to a document in its written memoria or in oral evidence, then the other party may request the court to order the other party to make the documents available. 
but that's only if the document is available. So unless it can be shown that it's not in possession, then it cannot be made available. To document evidence, all documentation must, should be in Arabic. And if a translation is required, then a licensed Saudia translator should proceed, produce it. Originally, primary source documentation will hold much more weight than summaries or schedules, which then may be rejected, especially when they may be prepared by the party seeking to rely on them. And case laws, while there's no binding precedent system, it is possible to submit copies of previous decisions in support of the case, which may be of persuasive value only. Right. And so, again, very different than... Um than in America, where discovery is a very important stage. Um, and under the federal rules of civil procedure, um, every party is entitled to the full disclosure of all relevant documents. There are very few exceptions to this. Um, private medical info, you know, the attorney-client privilege, only that kind of what's called privileged information mm-hmm. doesn't have to be disclosed. Everything else does. Um, if you don't, then it's, you know... You can have a motion put against yeah, you, which we'll talk you about lose. motions next. You, yeah, you know. No chance um, otherwise. So, yeah, it's basically, to sum up, just a pretrial exchange of information um, acted upon by three primary strategies. There are depositions, which is the interviewing of witnesses, potential witnesses. Um, there's interrogatories, <laughs> which are similar to depositions. They're essentially just written depositions. You'd send a list of questions. You would get a list of responses. Um, and then the production of documents and artifacts, like I said, basically any relevant documents other than that kind of privileged information. So the third phase is the motions. In Saudi Arabia, they don't really have motions. And then the fourth phase is the pretrial conference. And then they also don't really have pretrial conference. Right. So that's, you know, a little bit different than here. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely different because those third and fourth stages are quite important to any civil action in the United States. Um, so throughout the entire litigation process, any party can make a motion during that motions phase. A motion is basically a request to the judge for him or her to issue a legal ruling. Um, The motions can be either dispositive, which um, seeks to resolve the case in whole or in part. So, you know, for example, the request of a summary judgment, Um, or it can be non-dispositive, which would basically just be a motion relating to some smaller part of the case, like the conduct of one of the parties during an interrogatory or a deposition, et cetera. Um, the fourth and the final stage, as Amberlin mentioned, that would be the pretrial conference. Um, it's actually not mandated under the federal rules of civil procedure. Um, so it doesn't always happen, which is, you know, a little bit similar to Saudi Arabia, except there it never happens um, because here it's allowed. And um, basically what it is, the pretrial conference acts almost like a dress rehearsal for the trial itself. It's used to structure and to plan the coming trial. Um, you know, oh, this is the order that we'll have our witnesses in, that kind of a thing. Um, oftentimes it's also used for settlement. So now we're going to talk about like specific court, uh, so types of civil cases, and, and I'm going to specifically be talking about three different types, and we're going to start with family law. 
So uh, I'm going to start with within family law. I'm going to talk about divorce. But of course, before we talk about divorce, we kind of have to talk about marriage. So before like a marriage can happen in Saudi Arabia, there's a contract created between the groom and then a male relative of the bride. Um, the bride obviously has like no say whatsoever. Well, no direct say in what happens has to be in that document. Um, she's also has to indicate her marital status. So if she's been divorced, if she's been widowed and whether or not she's a virgin. Um, so in order to get a divorce for a woman, that right has to be specifically given to her in that document. Uh, or she has to provide or prove, sorry, that her husband is impotent or has abandoned her, which I imagine are both very challenging things to do. On the other hand, like Thessaly said earlier, the only thing a man has to do to get a divorce is to declare his intent before the court and repeat it three times, which is much easier. Um, although after a divorce, men are required to provide financial assistance for like a certain amount of time to their ex-wife, but there's no way for like, a woman to hold their husband accountable to that. So it's like, a, you're supposed to do this, but they don't really actually have No accountability, to. basically. Yep. And uh, another thing is custody. So I uh, say there is a divorce. Who gets the child? So most of the time, the custody goes to the father. Um, but if for some reason the father is ruled to not be a fit parent, parental rights go to his family. So usually his parents um, before they will go to the mother. And in the case of, say, a Saudi national and a foreign um, person uh, divorce, uh, in that dispute, even if the foreign parent has full custody of the child, uh, they're not allowed to take the child out of the country whatsoever. Yeah. So in the U.S. for divorce, um, it's governed by the laws of the individual state it occurs. And in he here, so in Saudi Arabia, the male can mainly do it. But in here, either spouse can file for divorce. And there are two main types of divorce in the United States. And there's the fault and the no fault. The no fault is when the marriage partners mutually agree that they no longer feel the marriage is worth continuing, so they just basically fall out of love or whatever. And then the fault, it allows the couple to obtain a divorce easily. So that is if there's like an assault, cruelty, and major offenses, basically. And in the custody, um, the child resides in accordance with the best interests of the child. And the child's rights not to be separated from his or her parents against the child's will. And here, if the parents live in different countries, the child has the right to maintain regular direct contact with both parents. And so all countries have to cooperate to give the child free access to enter and exit the country for family purposes. So the next area of civil cases that I want to talk about is debt collection. So more often than not, uh, these cases start in either the general court or court of grievances, depending on uh, the facts of the case. The general court is entitled to access um, to accept cases against individuals, and the board of grievances is, is entitled to accept cases against any legal entity. So depending on the case, a summons can be served on the defendant by a lawyer, by the police, or by the court um, within five days uh, from when the case is filed. And then each hearing is usually scheduled four to six weeks later, but as with like any court, delays are going to eventually happen. And then 
either party can appeal a judgment within 30 days from when the judgment is issued. So then after starting in the general court or board of grievances, um, in terms of getting the money, it can either be settled outside, the person pays, all good, everything's fine. Or um, it could go to enforcement court where it's more of a strict pay up. Um, cases can also begin in enforcement court, but it's there are more like, strict requirements for like a case to be heard there. So in enforcement court, there are no hearings. The judge directly passes an order against the debtor to pay within 21 days of filing the case. Um, it's very ing- aggressive, and uh, the non-appearance or refusal to pay by the debtor could result in one or more of the following seven ways. So it could seize the debt's commercial registration certificate, uh, halting business operations of the debtor, the issuance of an arrest warrant against the individual and and general manager of the dependent company. Uh, They could freeze a bank account. They could issue travel bans. um, They could notify the labor office to stop serving, to stop its services for the defendant company. It could impound movable and other immovable assets and or it could order issue an order to liquidate the company and recover the claim amount. So in the U.S., it's slightly different, but there's still some similarities. In here, in the U.S., there's the fair debt collection practice, which provides limitations on what debt collectors can do when collecting certain types of debts. And if they're violated, every violation costs $1,000. And debt collectors may not contact a person at an unusual time or place. So they can't harass you. They can't call your work. Can't call you at the middle of the night or whatever. And then in class, we learn that there's a demand letter. And that there needs to be the amount due. Who the amount goes to. And it's 30 days to validate. And if it's not validated within that time then it's assumed to be valid also in class there's the judgment which is good for 10 years and can be renewed so it can just keep going and going and then there's two types there's the wage garnish which you need the notice and that is you take 25 percent of the person's checks unless there's assumptions exceptions in the last six months if they got public assistance then you can't take that 25%. And then there's the bank garnishment, which is there's no notice and can take all the judgment if there's no exceptions. And then if it is, it's only 25%. And then the hearing is within six days. So the last part of civil law that I want to talk about is um, employment law. So this is like a huge wide thing. So we're going to kind of break it up a bit. So I'm going to start with just straight employment. So in Saudi Arabia, an employer has to have at least 75% of their employees be Saudi nationals, um, though that amount is subject to change um, via the Minister of Labor. And since June of 2011, the Saudi government has instituted a program known as Nitikat. I'm sorry, I probably butchered that pronunciation. But it's basically a business is ranked based on how many Saudi nationals that they have employed. So you can either have a score of excellent, green, yellow, or red, and this rating can influence certain privileges that businesses can receive, or they could have sanctions put on them. Um, So, uh, uh, sorry, 
privileges include things like how easy it is to get work permits for foreign nationals. So if you have like a mostly Saudi um, labor force, then it's going to be much easier for you to get work permits for foreigns, foreign people. And there aren't any restrictions on employment for Saudi women, uh, assuming that working conditions are appropriate and everything. But foreign women, on the other hand, are generally restricted to the health, education, and air transport sectors. So in the U.S., um, there's this thing called the Equal Employment Opportunity <coughs> Commissions, which enforces federal laws prohibiting employment discrimination. So you can't discriminate on race, color, religion, sex, which includes gender identity, transgender status, and sexual orientation, pregnancy, national origin, age 40 or older, disability, and genetic information. Right. And it's actually um, being debated. It's sort of a hot button topic at the moment um, as to which of these uh, identity markers should be protected and which should not. It does vary from state to state. Um, You know, the broad heading sex um, doesn't protect transgender individuals um, or even LGBT individuals in every state and um yeah there's just a big controversy right now as to whether those characteristics are quote-unquote immutable or not whether their status as immutable or not immutable should make them protected or not protected um but i think the important thing to keep in mind here is that we're having these debates and we're saying we should include or these are who we should include or this is why we should or should not. There's, mm-hmm. there's this open forum discussion. Things happening. are changing right now. Yeah. Yeah, which, exactly. <laughs> in this country, changes are going to happen there. You, you're not, you can't stay the same throughout. Basically. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, this act hasn't even been around mm-hmm. that long in the grand scheme of things. I mean, it's already changed a lot. So the next area of employment law that I want to talk about are work hours and compensation. So normal working hours are eight hours a day, six days a week, so 48 hours total per week. Um, Anything over that, they're expected to be compensated with overtime pay, although there are some exceptions, um, like the catering industry, where, like, hours aren't necessarily um, set in a week. So... During Ramadan, which is um, a Muslim holiday in which um, Muslims fast, so they don't eat during the day, their hours are dropped to six hours a day, six days a week, for a total of um, 36 hours a week. And it's also common for Muslims to receive a 13-month salary for Eid al-Fitr. Sorry, I probably also butchered that pronunciation but that's the holiday the mercy end of ramadan so salary and benefits are on at least under a fixed term contract as well as an employee status uh, can't be reduced during the contract term so unless you're being fired then you have your same salary you have your same benefits you have your same like job title throughout your contract um but at the end of that contract uh, parties can renegotiate um, positions, salaries, whatever, provided that the employee is given like clear choice as to whether or not he wants to accept these new conditions. So I can't just like slightly change something in Amberlin's contract without 
her knowing and approving of it. Um, so then if there's an indefinite term contract is terminated on prior notice, then um, it's possible to rehire that employee on different terms with like reduced wages, benefits, whatever you want to change, um, particularly when the employer can demonstrate that there's valid reasons for such a change. So in the United States, a normal working hours is eight hours a day, five days a week, so 40 hours a week. And then once that happens, um, overtime happens, which is part of the Fair Labor Standards Act, which requires that workers who clock more than 40 hours per week receive overtime pay. And overtime pay works as 1.5 times the regular regular rate. And then for compensations, um, there's coverage for workers' medical expenses, compensation for lost wages while workers are recovering, and benefits for dependents of workers who died from drought-related hazards. Right, and then it's worth noting as well that there are a lot of um, rules and laws in place that make life easier for women um, in the United States who are pregnant or who have just given birth. You know, um, employers are required to provide a space for nursing mothers. Um, and there are all sorts of requirements for the space to have down to like an electrical outlet. Um, you know, nursing mothers get a certain amount of time off of work and um, there isn't really, it sounds like anything like that in Saudi Arabia. And it's interesting because it's a big debate right now is whether, you know, new parents or new mothers get enough time paid off of work. Um, but, you know, at least we get some. It's even with the fathers now, there's getting the paternal leave now. Mm-hmm. So see, some work don't even allow the fathers to get take time off. Mm-hmm. But I think that's changing now, I think. It's being brought into the spotlight. Yeah. Subject to change soon. So... Another thing that I want to talk about is health benefits. So um, one of the things that Saudi Arabia has is a general organization for health, also known as GOSI. And it requires that 2% of all workers, both Saudi and foreign, um, their 2% of their wages have to be paid by the employer towards a workers' compensation and disability plan in case something goes wrong on the job. Um, Ghosty also has a retirement plan kind of set in, but it's only for Saudi nationals. So um, the total contribution to this is 18% of the employee's wages. Uh, 9% of that comes from the employee and 9% comes from the employer. So in terms of um, direct health health benefits, um, Saudi Arabia doesn't have a government health plan, but medical hospital care is free for Saudi citizens. And for non-Saudi employees and Saudi employees, if they so wish, um, if they want to be covered, health benefits are required to be provided by the employer, depending on the um, number of employees and where they are located geographically. So the labor regulation provides like prevention against major industrial accidents in high-risk facilities and vocational injuries. So they define a high-risk facility being one that produces hazardous substances or um, handles, removes, or stores hazardous substances. So employers have to coordinate with the Ministry of Labor to determine like, if they're, whether or not they're a high-risk facility. Um, and 
the Minister of Labor issues like a decision that set, sets forth uh, safety arrangements that need to be made by the employer and the employer's obligation in, the, in this regard, including like, prevention of major accidents and limiting risks of major accidents. So under labor regulation, employers are responsible for any occasional injury that an employee may sustain while working, and an employer is obligated to provide treatment to his employee and pay all expenses related to that injury. So for um, the health part, um, employers must follow all <coughs> occupational safety and health administration standards, which is to keep employees from being injured at work. So they have to provide a hazard-free workplace, provide the training in case of the hazards, um, the resources that they need, and any of the answers and stuff, and um, tell the worker what to do if they get hurt on a job or someone else gets hurt on the job. And the health benefits, um, there's the Family and Medical Leave Act, which allows an employee to take an extended leave of absence from work due to like the illness, um, caring for quality sick family member, the birth of a adoption birth or adoption of a child, military caregiving or other emergencies related to a family member active to civic duty service. Also, um, in terms of like whether or not you get like a certain like insurance from your company <laughs> depends on say your position and what the company wants to give you. Also like how long you've been there, yeah. you might get better insurance depending on are you just a temp are you a manager or whatever so yeah so the last thing that i want to talk about is firing yay in saudi arabia there are two different types of dismissal there's non-summary dismissal which is basically the employee does something wrong and for that um the employer has to provide written warnings uh, to the employee after that transgression. And then for summary dismissals, there are nine reasons in which an employment agreement can be canceled uh, without notice or payment of the end of service award, which I'll talk about a little bit later. So these include things like uh, physical violence, um, offenses, sabotaging workplace, and so an employee can contest his dismissal by lodging a complaint with the labor office. And if there's like no settlement occurs, it's referred, the matter's referred to the labor dispute settlement authorities. And it's common for employees who've been found to be dismissed unjustly to receive um, the equivalents of about three months wages as compensation for that. And in turn, other compensations. Um, so when a fixed term employee agreement ends or when an employer terminates an indefinite agreement uh, other than for cause the employee is entitled to half one month's wages for each of the first five years of employment and a full month's wages for each year of employment thereafter um, the wages uh, by reference to which an end of service award is calculated uh, includes base salary overseas uh, overseas service premiums regular bonuses, additional benefits, and additional benefits, which are paid on a regular basis, such as, like, housing and transportation allowance. So that all gets factored in to what they get after being fired. So an employee who resigns in the first two years, or gets fired in the first two years, uh, they don't get any kind of end-of-service award for 
the time that they did work there. And then there are further rules for an employee who resigned after working more than two years. So in the U.S., um, an employee can fire for any reason or no reason at all. Um, but it just can't be a discrimination reason for it. And some of the compensations for firing, um, they're entitled to a final paycheck, severance package, or severance pay, health coverage, and unemployment compensation. So in summary, the civil law in Saudi Arabia and United States, there are some major differences, but in other areas, not so much. We first start off talking about litigations and how litigious Saudi Arabia and United States are. Then we went on to the pretrial phrases and how they differ and similar they are. Then we went into the three types of civil law, family, debt collection, and then employment. In family law, we talked about divorces and custody. In debt collections, we talked about how the collector, what collectors can and cannot do. Then finally, we talked about employment law, and there we talked about what things employers have to give to their employees and how their businesses are set up. Thanks for joining us on Coffee House Comparison, and next week we'll be talking about the judicial policy making and wrap up the season.